Last week, what I tried to do was give you guys a, a basic approach or interpretation as to how I approach the book of Revelation. Again, I, I mean, there are as many different approaches and interpretations to this book as there are pastors and theologians. I understand that 100 and I'm not up here trying to tell you that I have a monopoly on the market and that I've got it all figured out, okay? But I do want you to understand that the book of Revelation was very challenging and did not make a whole lot of sense to me over the years as I studied it until I discovered what I call prophetic patterns in Scripture. Prophetic patterns in Scripture. So uh, as you know, I showed this last week. Um, this is, uh, is kind of my chart, and again, we'll, we'll kind of make reference to this from time to time, and this is where I kind of, how I lay out the, the final seven years of human history. We'll look at that a little bit more today in, in Daniel chapter 9, and you can see that I have the seals of Revelation basically covering the whole seven um, years of the Daniel 70th week, you know, thereabouts. You know, again, these things aren't necessarily perfectly precise, but when I discovered this, the whole book of Revelation made sense to me. It opened up to me like it had never opened up before because I used to try to read the book of Revelation in a strict chronological order and I began to see some of the same things recurring over and over and over again. I'm like, what well, that already happened? How can it happen again? Jesus already came. How can he come again? You, you know, and I start reading these things and it doesn't make sense because like these things can't happen one, two, three, four times. And yet when I started putting them together thematically, I started putting them, them together as patterns, then you can begin to piece the, the puzzle together, as it were. And the way that I understand the seals of Revelation is that the seals provide the basic overview, the big picture of the entire Great Tribulation, and really the entire 70th week of Daniel, but really specifically the entire Great Tribulation. And when I began to look at it from that perspective, it all fit. It all made sense. I didn't force it. It just, it just fit. And so there, there you'll kind of see some of the themes important uh, that are essential to the book of Revelation. And you can see kind of where they fit in that timeline, okay? And, and we'll, we'll get into more of this as we go. But let me give, let me give you a perfect example because I, I didn't really get to finish a lot last week against time. And I'm going to give you a perfect example. In the book of Genesis, the very first chapter of the Bible, okay, what do we have? The story of what? Creation. How many days? Seven days. Six days God performed all of his work, and on the seventh day he what? That's the first chapter. Okay? Then turn to Genesis chapter 2. And God begins to tell us this other story about how he created man out of the dust of the ground, planted a garden in Eden, formed woman out of man. The man named all the animals. They basically was their wedding day. They got married right there with the Lord. And so a lot of people get confused because they try to say that Genesis 2 is a separate creation account than what we read in Genesis 1. But that's not true. Genesis 2 is just the details, the fine details about what happened on the sixth day of what? Of creation. You don't read them separately as two separate creation accounts. A lot of people get really tripped up on this and they've tried to come up with all these, all these elaborate explanations about, well, maybe there were mankind on the earth before Adam and Eve. You know, he made all of humanity in his own image. And then later he came around and made Adam and Eve, you know, after that. No, 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 no. That's not what's being communicated here. He's saying, I'm giving you the big picture in Genesis 1, the seven days of creation, just kind of the big, the highlights, right? And then in Genesis 2, he gives us the fine what? The fine detail about what happened when he formed man out of the dust of the earth. That happened on day 
6. And so it's the same thing with the book of Revelation. The seals are kind of like those first seven days of creation. They give us the big picture overview of the entire book. And then everything else that we read fits within seals. It gives us the finer what? The finer details. And I promise you guys that, again, when I discovered this, the book came alive and it made sense to me. Okay? And so we have to understand that that's how I'm approaching this book it doesn't mean that's how you have to approach this book. You can try to figure it all out on yourself. I encourage you to do so. But whenever I'm teaching up here, that's kind of from where I'm coming from. You need to know where I'm coming from so you won't get confused. So, so we're just saying, right, when those horsemen ride, you're going to have to what? I knew it would already stick in your mind, see? When those horsemen ride, you're going to have to choose a side. I'm going I'm to make even a better statement here. You better choose right now. Resolve in your heart today, who are you serving? To whom are you going to give allegiance? Who are you trusting in? Who are you putting your faith in today, this day, before those horsemen even begin to ride on the scene as we think about the four horsemen of the apocalypse? And that's what we're about to get into here in Revelation chapter 6. Who are they? What's going on? What's being communicated here? Guys, when these things begin to unfold and unravel, it's going to happen what? so fast and so rapidly that many people are going to get caught off guard, they're going to get surprised, they're going to be distracted, they're going to be deceived, and they're not going to be spiritually prepared to face what is coming upon the earth during this critical time in the future. So let's talk real briefly about just who are these four horsemen in general, and I just want to give you some thoughts about the four horsemen. And the best way I can just generically tell you who the four horsemen are is that they have both a supernatural element to them. These are not just regular men, okay, riders on a horse, okay? We understand that. These are, these are fallen angels, supernatural beings, entities. Uh, I'm going to show you where I get that from here in just a second. However, even though there's a spiritual component, a supernatural component behind these four horsemen who will go to ride on throughout the whole earth to bring these judgments on the earth, they will play out in real time with people. In space-time, in, in, in the physical component of our material universe and our earth, these things are going to happen, so they don't happen in some spirit realm. However, the spirit realm is most definitely behind the going out of these four horses. Does that make sense? And so we get the first description of these four horses in the book of Zechariah. Look at what it says in Zechariah. I want to give you a little background. I saw, this is Zechariah giving a, a vision. He says, I saw and behold a man riding a red horse. Standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. He says, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. Look at what he said. These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And he, and he said, we, and the, the horses answer, says, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Turn to Zechariah 6 now. Same imagery. Look at what it says. From Four chariots came out from between mountains. They had red horses, black horses, white horses, dappled horses. Does that sound familiar? That's what we're fixing to get into. A white horse, a red horse, a, dark, a black horse, a pale horse. We're, these horses mean something. Look at what it says. These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. And look at what this says. I underlined it. It says, when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. So they find the whole earth is at rest. 
And these four horses don't like that. They're impatient. What do they want to do? They want to create chaos. You see, God is sovereignly over everything that's going to happen. Who's tearing the seals in the book of Revelation? Jesus is tearing the seals. He's unleashing. He is allowing. He's permitting these spiritual, supernatural beings to go and do what they're designed to do, which is to destroy, to create chaos, to create war, famine, bloodshed, all kind of terrible things that are coming upon the earth. And even in the days of Zechariah, they are patrolling the earth and they're waiting for the day that the seal is what? Broken, because that's what their desire is. Okay? So they're going to and fro throughout the earth, waiting for the day that the Lord allows them to do what they're desired to do. These are not good guys. You understand? Now, there's somebody else in the Old Testament that has very similar language. This is another reason why I believe these four horsemen are not good guys. Look at what it says in Job 1. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And what did he answer? From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Satan also, the great enemy, the great adversary, what's he doing? He's, he's, he's roaming around like a what? Roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Now, he has to present himself to the Lord. He cannot do anything outside of the Lord's authority and sovereign will. We know that. But God will allow these things to happen in the last days. And they will, these, these spiritual beings, these horsemen and Satan himself, they will be responsible for their own actions. But who's allowing it to happen? God is allowing it to happen. And that's something we've got to kind of wrestle with. We've got to wrap our minds around a little bit. Because a lot of times we read the book of Revelation and we're like, well, is this God doing this or is this Satan doing this? What's your answer? Yes. That's the way God works. That's how he is operating in these four horsemen. Uh, there's one more. Let me see if I can find it. I think it's Romans chapter uh, 9. I'll give you a perfect example. In Romans 9, 17, it says this. God is speaking about, Paul's writing to the Romans, speaking about Pharaoh. Remember Pharaoh in Egypt? He says, I have, the Lord said, I have raised up Pharaoh for myself so that I can display my power and wonders in him and through him. Pharaoh was a wicked king who just oppressed God's people and did many horrible things to the people of God. Who raised him up? The Lord did. In order that he could show his dominance and his power and authority over Pharaoh. It's the very same thing that's going to be happening, guys, in these seals. Even though God, in a sense, has allowed these spiritual beings to be let loose, to go and create chaos on the earth, he's doing it in a way and in a sense so that he ultimately can demonstrate his authority, his power, his sovereignty over all of creation. And that's the way these things are played out in real time on the earth. So I just want to kind of give you guys a, a little bit of a handle of how are we going to understand these four horsemen. So let's look at the first seal in Revelation chapter 6. This is what's fascinating. We get two verses. Two. You ready? Now I watched. When the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, the first, and I heard one of the four living creatures. Interesting. Remember, these are the cherubim. These are these 
these supernatural high-class angels that are around the throne room of God, they are the ones who call these horses to be unleashed. So again, God is giving them part of this, this drama. The Lord could have told the horses to go, but he lets the living creatures tell them, come. Look what he says. Say with a voice like thunder, come. And I look and behold a white horse. And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. Who is this rider? Who's the rider on the white horse? The way I look at it, you only got a couple of options. Some people will say this is Jesus. Because in Revelation 19, we see who coming on the clouds? On a white horse. Jesus. So they say, well, this is guys riding a white horse, so so he must be Jesus, because later in the book we see Jesus riding a white horse. I don't hold to that perspective for, for many, many reasons, because all of these supernatural beings, remember, these horses that we just learned about in Zechariah, these aren't what? These aren't good guys. These are bad guys. These are spiritual beings, supernatural entities that are released upon the earth to create all kinds of chaos in the last days. Okay? We know this, that Jesus, he doesn't return until the what? end riding his white horse isn't that what we just saying we won't fear these horsemen because there's really not just four horsemen there's what there's five we don't fear these horsemen because we know another he's got a horse too right that's jesus so i don't believe this is jesus and there's other you know theories out there i'm not going to waste my time on them but i do believe this is what we would call in christian language the antichrist okay This is the rise of the Antichrist. So the first thing I want to share with you today is that the rider on the white horse represents the ultimate false messiah. Okay? The Antichrist. I'm using that name because that's the most familiar name that we have for this person, this this rider on the white horse. Now remember, there's there's a supernatural component to him. We'll see that in a minute. But there's also a natural component to him. He's a man, and he will be expressed as a man. We will identify him as a man. However, he's got tremendous demonic supernatural power behind him, okay? It's both. But he is the Messiah who will, listen, this is what's so interesting about the Antichrist. The word Antichrist, you need to know this. He will not just rage against Christ. Anti meaning meaning against, right? He's the antithesis of Jesus Christ. He, He hates him. The Antichrist hates God and his anointed. He hates Jesus. But he will also seek to do what? Counterfeit Christ. He will come as a pretender. He will come as somebody so powerful, so persuasive, so just seductive that the whole world will think that this must be our Savior. He is taking the place, in essence, of Jesus Christ. So it's not just that he hates Jesus and is coming against Jesus Christ. Yes, he is doing that, but he is also coming as a counterfeit Messiah. That's why we call him a false Messiah. Look at what it says in Mark 13. Jesus tells us, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not what? Don't believe it. For false Christ, antichrist, And false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if it were possible, 
the elect. This is God's people. But be on guard. Jesus says, I have told you these things beforehand. Thank you, Lord. Aren't you glad Jesus told us these things beforehand? You ever step back and say, why do we even study all this stuff? Like, can't we just go out and love Jesus and love people and not worry about all this? It's because it was important to who? It was important to Jesus. It was important to Paul and the apostles and all the Old Testament prophets. And the reason Jesus tells us all these things in advance is so that we can recognize this ultimate false messiah, this anti-messiah, so that we don't get swept up in his deception and we don't get swept up into his persuasions and his seductions and his false signs and wonders. Guys, this is so, so very important because the Bible is telling us that this guy is going to be so persuasive and so powerful that if it were possible, even God's people would go after him and worship him. And be deceived and seduced by him. That means he's going to do things that this world has what? Never seen. He's going to present himself in such a way that the whole world is going to be astonished at who he is. 1 John 2. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have already come. Oh really? Think about Nebuchadnezzar. Think about some of the Haman in the Old Testament. Think about um, Adolf Hitler. Think about some of the Roman emperors who crushed and destroyed Jerusalem. These were, these were antichrists. These were pictures and foreshadows, prefigurements of the ultimate antichrist. He said, many antichrists have come. Now look at what it says. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Now stay with me. Look at what it says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you, brothers and sisters, you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all what? Knowledge. We're supposed to have knowledge about these things. What's John saying? There's coming a time in the end when this Antichrist is going to be so powerful and so deceptive that many people who identify themselves as Christians are going to be swept away and seduced by him and they're going to go follow him. The great apostasy is what the Bible, the great falling away. And John says, all that means is that if you go and follow Antichrist, then you never what? You never belong to Christ to begin with. It's going to be the great revealer of who we really are in the last days. Look at what he says. Who, who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Remember, he hates the Father, he hates the Son. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. At his coming. Look at what it says in 2 Thessalonians. Paul says this. The coming of the lawless one. Who's that? The Antichrist. Same name. We're going to get into the names in just a second. The coming of the lawless one. He is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Now listen, when it says false signs, that doesn't mean that he's a, he's a phony, he's a fake. That just means they, that the signs and wonders lead people into falsehood. His power is very real. His power and his signs and his wonders are going to be astonishingly real. 
Again, they're going to be like anything, unlike anything else that we've ever seen. It says, he's coming with false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Now, this is what's scary. Therefore, God sends them a what? Strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Guys, when those horsemen ride, you had better chosen aside because if not you will be swept away and it will be too late you will be swept up into this false delusion that god will send upon the earth for those who follow after this antichrist this rider on the white horse now let's look at a couple of the the very again just a few verses just gives us a couple of details about who is this rider it says he was given a crown and he held a what he held a bow, okay? Let's first look at what does it mean that he was given a crown, okay? This is what I believe it means, Revelation 13. Now, again, let me tell you what I'm talking about here. Remember what I said. The seals represent the big picture, okay? We only get two verses about this guy in the, big, in the seals. Is that, does that mean that that's all the book of Revelation provides about this guy? There's details about him later in the book of Revelation. It fills in the blanks. So you go to Revelation 13 and you find out how he was given a crown. He was given authority. Look at this. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten crowns, diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear. Its mouth was like a lion. And to it, the beast, the dragon is Satan himself. Satan gives his what? Power, his throne, and his authority. Now, last time I checked, Satan is not a very giving and sharing kind of person. Right? He's going to give this guy his power, his throne, and his authority. He's going to be a king. He is going to be a mighty ruler, king, warrior, military leader on the earth and satan is going to be the one that gives him authority to the point where it says and the whole world worshiped the dragon for he has given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast the beast is just another name for the antichrist look at what it says who is like the beast who can fight against this guy you mean all of china's nukes and america's nukes and russia's nukes they're not even going to even want to what they're not even going to want to stand against this guy. Who can fight against this guy? Let's, no way. We're not even going to attempt to fight this guy because he's going to be supernaturally and demonically charged and empowered by who? Satan himself. Unlike anybody that we've ever seen, he is given a crown. He's given authority. And not only does Satan give him a crown and authority, but look at what it says. All these other kings, these other nations, look at what it says. The ten horns that you saw are ten kings, and they've not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, and together with the beast, look at what they do. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to who? To the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. You see, not only does Satan give him a crown, Satan gives him authority, but the kings of the earth that he will be able to rule over, they're also going to give him all of their authority 
as well. Well, what's this business about a bow? I've heard a lot of people say, well, that means he's coming with peace. Because he's, he's got a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows. I don't see it that way. A bow is just a weapon of what? It's a weapon of war. This guy, I mean, he may, he may, he may deceive and, and strike some deals and do some things. It's going to create maybe a sense of you know, stability in the region or whatever. But this guy, don't make no mistake about it. He's coming out conquering and to conquer. That's who he is. He's a warrior. He's a, he's a military leader. He's coming out with a bow. When you start reading the Old Testament, you see things like this. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes the war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And then we quote the only verse out of Psalm 6 that we know. Be still and know that I am God. Y'all know that's a messianic psalm? That's after Jesus comes to destroy the Antichrist and break his bow. At that moment, the whole earth will stand what? Still before God and say, he's God, not this guy. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. Ezekiel 39. Ogog, he's, that's another Old Testament description of the Antichrist. I'll show you the, the other names here in a minute. He's the chief prince, Meshach and Tubal. Look at what it says. I will bring you from the uttermost parts of the north and lead you against the mountains of Israel, and then I will strike your bow from your left hand, and I will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You see, this rider on the white horse who has a bow, it just means that he's a military conqueror, and Jesus is coming to crush him. Now look at these names of Antichrist. And, and this is a, a short list, okay? I just use the word Antichrist because that's what everybody resonates with. That's what is the popular name. But he's really not called the Antichrist in Scripture except in 1 John 2. Everywhere else he has all these different names. He's called the Little Horn in Daniel 7 and 8. He's called the Prince to Come in Daniel 9. He's called a King of Boldface in Daniel 8. He's called the King of the North in Daniel 11. He's called a fierce king and a cruel master, Isaiah 19. He's called the Assyrian in Isaiah 10 and Micah 5. He's called Gog of Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. He's called the son of destruction, the man of lawlessness, and probably the best title for him is he's the beast. He is the beast. I think there's something to that. I'm not going to get into much of that right now. We'll get into that more later. But there's something different about this Antichrist. So here's what you need to know. He will be a Gentile king. Why is it important that I say that? Because there are theories out there that say that the Antichrist will be a Jew. I see no evidence in the scripture that the Antichrist will be of Jewish descent. The reason I say that is because, remember, every other Antichrist who has ever emerged in the Middle East, whether it be the Babylonians, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the Assyrians, the Persians, Adolf Hitler, the Romans... Every single one of them Jews, but they were what? They were Gentiles. The very final Antichrist, I believe, will be a Gentile king. I believe he comes from the Middle East, and he's known as the Little Horn, and he's going to quickly rise to power. Now, i got to share this because I think it's very fascinating. If you've never studied this, you might want to go and study this. Spend a second here. 
Anybody ever heard of the, the last imam of Islam? He's called the Mahdi. You ever heard of him? Here's what's fascinating. Islam has their end time scenario too. Did you know that they have scriptures that, that tell the Muslims how the end times are going to play out? And they say that the Mahdi is coming to deliver the world and give it up completely to Islam. When you read the prophecies of the Mahdi, it's almost like an exact reverse negative of what we read in Scripture. It is amazing. Listen to this. I'm just going to go through this as fast as I can. You ready? Keep up with me right here. Now, this comes from Muslim sources, Muslim Scriptures. I'm not here to say that we're against Muslims. I love Muslims. I want them to know Jesus. They're deceived in a false system, of, a, a false belief system. But look at what their Mahdi will do. He is, is Islam's primary messiah. He'll be a descendant of Muhammad and will bear Muhammad's name. He will be very devout Muslim. He will have unparalleled spiritual, political, and military world power. He will emerge after a period of great turmoil and suffering upon the earth. He will establish justice on, to er eradicate tyranny. He will be the caliph, uh, the, basically the leader of Muslims worldwide. He will lead a world revolution, establish a new world order. He'll lead military actions against all those who oppose him. Does that sound familiar? He will invade many countries. He'll make a seven-year peace treaty with the Jews of a priestly lineage. That's in Muslim prophetic scriptures. Interesting. He will conquer Israel for Islam and lead the faithful Muslims in the final slaughter against the Jews. He will establish the new Islamic world headquarters in Jerusalem. He will rule for seven years. He'll cause Islam to be the only religion. He will appear riding a white horse. These are Muslim scriptures. They, their, their savior is coming to ride a what? A white horse, which our antichrist in the Bible is riding a white horse. I could go on and on. And so all these different things. He'll rediscover the Ark of the Covenant. He'll have supernatural power. He'll possess and distribute wealth. He'll be loved by all people on the earth. Guys, these things right here are so fascinating to me. If you want to dig in more about that, I think there's something there. Because remember, these things do not happen in a vacuum. These things play out in real time with real people, real countries, real geopolitical um, dynamics. And right now, as I look at the world around us, there is one primary candidate from which the Antichrist will emerge, and it is from Islam. Right now, that's the number one candidate. Everything lines up, okay? Not so that we can hate Muslims. Please hear me that. Please hear me say that. We love them. There's a great revival breaking out around the world right now in Muslim countries. They're coming to faith in Jesus in record numbers. We need to be sharing the gospel to them as much as we possibly can because, guys, there are billions of Muslims on the earth today who are looking for their Savior, and it's our Antichrist. And they're going to follow him. There will be a context to how these things take place. And so as we begin to work through some of these Old Testament scriptures, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. But you need to know that he's called the little horn. In Daniel 7, again, the same person, look at what it says. It says, Behold, there came up among them a, another horn, a little horn, before which of the three first horns were plucked out by its roots. And behold, in, his horn, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Okay, and Daniel 7 lays the context. He shall rise out of the earth. Okay, he is going... 
Um, let me skip ahead here. Daniel 7, 19, look at what it says. It says that he, this horn, this little horn, made war with the saints and prevailed over them until God came, until the Ancient of Days came. Okay? So we know that he's going to prevail over God's people. He's going to have a, a period of time where he will prosper. He will succeed. He will conquer. That's why it says in, in, in Revelation 6, he's coming out conquering and to conquer. Look at what it says in Daniel 7. It says, this beast will devour the whole earth, trample it down, break it into pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He will be different. He's different than all the others. What does he do? He's going to speak words against the Most High, and he will wear out the saints of the Most High. God, it, guys, it's not going to be fun. He's coming against God's people. And he will have enough authority. It will be give, we will be given into his hand for how long? A time times and half a time. All that means is what? Three and a half years. You're going to see three and a half years repeated over and over and over again in these prophecies. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away and it will be consumed and destroyed to the very end. And so we see that that's kind of how the 70th week of Daniel plays out. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. You can go back and look at your notes. But we have the final seven years. The, this rider on the white horse is going to begin to rise to power. And in, eventually in the middle of the seven years, he's going to reveal himself as the beast, as the man of sin. And he's going he's gonna to do the greatest evil that the world has ever seen. It's called the abomination of desolation. Not only that, but he establishes what's called the covenant of death. So let me just break it down to you real quick. The covenant of death is that this antichrist figure, he's going to strengthen or confirm an existing covenant with many at the beginning of the final seven years. It's called the covenant of death. Let me give you the, the brief summary, okay? Here's the way I suspect it's going to go down. I can't tell you this 100%. This is the way I suspect it's going to go down. As the Antichrist begins to rise to power, there's going to be a lot of instability in the Middle East. And Israel is going to be vulnerable. And instead of Israel trusting in who? In God, as they should. Most of Israel is not a believing nation right now. They're going to turn to this Antichrist figure, okay, and make a deal with him, a pact with him, so that they can have a security agreement to have his military protection if in case things go bad. And you know what the Bible calls this, this agreement? It's going to be a covenant of death. Look at what it says. Isaiah 28. Woe to you people who rule in Jerusalem because you've said we've made a covenant with death and Sheol. We are in agreement. So when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge. Falsehood, we have hidden ourselves. You see, they're making this covenant with this antichrist figure and God judges them for it in Isaiah 28 18 he says your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand when the overflowing scourge passes through then you will be what you're going to be trampled down so there's going to be some type of covenant some type of an agreement Israel's going to enter into this covenant with death and it's going to be bad it's going to end poorly it's going to end bad for them at the end because the Antichrist is going to turn against them and trample them down. And that's when he invades 
Jerusalem. We know that the Antichrist is a schemer. He's going to have plots and deceive nations. Look, this guy, he's going to be working behind the scenes. Not many people are going to really know what's going on. He's going to be playing people against each other. He's the master manipulator. He's the father of lies. That's who Satan is. This guy is going to be a master schemer. He's going to be making sure that he's putting every piece together so that he can step into power at just the right time. I could go through so many scriptures. His cunning, he will make deceit prosper. Look at what it says. He will seduce with flattery. I could give you so many other scriptures about how he's going to go about do, uh, aligning things up militarily and politically so that he can rise to power and take his place. And then this is the critical point right here, guys. And I'm going to kind of try to try to bring this whole thing to, to, to an end. Because I, I love my wife is, is, is very wise because... I like getting into all the details about this stuff. And many of you, this may be kind of whew, maybe over your head. I don't know. You need to know it. You need to pay attention. You need to recognize who this rider on the white horse is. But this is how we for sure who he is. It's called the what? The abomination of desolation. There's coming a day when there will be a temple in Jerusalem again. I believe it could happen very quickly. Everything is in place and in line. The Jews want to rebuild their what? Their temple, on the Temple Mount. How it happens, I'm not 100% sure, but I do believe Scripture is clear. There will be a temple. Who wants that temple to be rebuilt? The Antichrist. Do you know why? Because whose holy mountain does that belong to? That's Jesus' holy mountain. When Jesus returns on the earth to establish his kingdom, guess where his throne will be? On that temple mount. That's where Jesus will rule and reign in Jerusalem forever. So the Antichrist, he wants to take which rightfully belongs to who? To Jesus. So he wants that temple to be rebuilt so that he can go into that temple. He can set up his throne and declare himself to be who? God. And he's going to have the goods to back it up. He's going to be unlike any human you've ever met. He's going to be energized with Satan, supernaturally empowered. And he may say, I'm God, worship me. And the whole world's going to say, he must be because nobody else has ever been able to do what he can do. And I want to be like him. When he enters into this holy place in Jerusalem, at the midpoint of these last seven years, guys, we know for sure that that's, who, that's the Antichrist. We may not know 100% who he is leading up to that point, but when that happens and we see it happen, the Lord Jesus told us himself, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, he says, when you see him standing in the holy place, you know that the great tribulation has begun. And you better flee for the mountains because it's about to get bad. We have to be ready and prepared. That's what the midpoint of the tribulation is all about. Now, let's, let's finish here because I think it's, there's, again, there's so much more. I can't cover everything today, but I do want to show you what I think is going to happen to the beast. There's only one other person in Scripture called the son of perdition. Anybody know who it is? Judas Iscariot. He has the same name as the Antichrist. What do we know about Judas? After he had taken the bread, what did 
What did Satan do to Judas? Satan entered Judas. Man, I, I don't know what, what was happening there. But all I know is the scripture says the devil himself. The devil doesn't just enter anybody. He has demons and all these other spiritual beings that torment people and oppress people. But Satan himself, when he decides to enter somebody, it's for a purpose. It says that Satan entered Judas. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. Look at what it says. Jesus said, I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Guys, that's the very same thing that's going to happen with the Antichrist. Right there, probably around the same time as the abomination of desolation takes place, this son of perdition, this beast, this little horn, this Antichrist, whatever you want to call him, when he steps into the temple, declares himself to be God, there's going to be some type of transformation that takes place in this guy's life. Satan is going to enter into him, and there's going to be something radical that takes place in this guy and he's going to be unlike any other person that you've ever seen on the face of the earth and we need to be prepared for that he's called the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction i could again tell you so many other scriptures but we're going to stop right there and we'll probably just have to pick up some of this stuff a little bit later because there's just so much to cover and all i was trying to do today is give you a flavor, give you a taste, okay, of who is this rider on the white horse. I do believe he is the son of destruction. I do believe he is this antichrist figure. And he is going to rise on the scene very fast. And he is going to manipulate and persuade people to follow him. And he's going to lead military battles to create vacuums in the Middle East. And eventually he's going to get all these other nations to come around him and give him their authority. And then he's going to receive the authority from Satan himself. And then he's going to stand on that holy temple in the, in the temple of God in Jerusalem at the midpoint of the last seven years of human history. And at that moment, guys, the Bible tells us that it's the beginning of the great tribulation and it is going to be the worst time in human history we need to be ready and prepared because again my perspective is that God's people the saints the elect children of God Christians we will what we're gonna be here we will see him we will be able to identify him and we're going to have to learn how to live through that time and remain faithful to Jesus Christ, even if it costs us our what? Our very lives. Even if it costs us our very lives. We need to be prepared. I'm going to ask our praise team to come on back up because we're going to finish up with one, si uh, one more song. And I think this song really, it really brings everything that I've shared with you today to, to a head, okay? Don't wait for that time. To decide. Resolve in your heart today whom you will choose to follow. Don't wait. If you wait, you're taking a risk. And the main thing, guys, that I want you to hear this morning is that there may be some of you in the room today and you're not 100% secure and assured in your salvation. There's nothing more important living right now than for you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, that you belong 
to God. You're one of his children. Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. He lives in you. You've been sealed by his Holy Spirit. And you belong to him. And that no matter what happens, we all have to die. Right? I mean, that's, we all have to die. That, that's not the point. of Surviving the great tribulation is not necessarily the point. Here's the point. That when that time comes, that we don't fall away. When that time comes, we remain faithful. That's what this is all about. Amen. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father God, I love you. I thank you for your faithfulness in our life. I pray, Lord, that everyone here would make a decision today, and today may be the day of their salvation. I pray, Lord, that you would work in every heart and bless those who make a decision to follow Jesus today. For it's in your holy and precious name.